Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 22, Epic Mailbag 2, Suicide Squad Cast Photo. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. Well, we just got done watching Avengers Age of Ultron, and it was quite a spectacle. Some great action and cheeky banner. The plot wasn't airtight, but I don't think you walk into a Marvel movie expecting that. If you like the sequence that pretended to be a single continuous shot from the first movie, or that iconic shot where the camera circles around the Avengers, this is basically a two-hour version of that. As long as your expectations are in check, you'll probably enjoy yourself. Honestly, I don't have the time to be doing three weeks of episodes straight, much less create content for the website and the YouTube channel, but there's so much DCC news that I just haven't had a chance to comment on, and with so many questions popping up, I thought I'd just do a quick unscripted mailbag to clear out as many questions as I could. The only prep that I've done is to consolidate similar questions, gather the notes that I had on any of the old outstanding ones, and cull any loaded question. A loaded or a leading question presupposes facts or some emotive implication or connotation, less interested in the answer and more about asserting a point. I don't mind rhetorical questions or Socratic questions, but phrasing a loaded argument in the form of a question is unlikely to get a response from me. I've got enough substantive questions to answer without having to unravel the intentions or presuppositions of a loaded question, so I'm not answering those. But on to the questions, I think the general approach I'm going to take is DCC you questions first, then the films in release order, meaning Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, Wonder Woman, and Justice League. And then if we have time, but I don't think we will, I'll tackle some miscellaneous questions. Uh, this is future Dr. Awkward here. After this episode was recorded and edited and about to be released, the new Suicide Squad cast picture was posted. And so I recorded my initial reactions and that's been added in. We may go back and do a more in-depth analysis in the future, but I just want to get this out to you in a timely fashion. So those will be down in the Suicide Squad section as we get back to the regular show. Okay, on to uh, general DCCU questions. And several listeners sent me this one. As a rule, I don't do responses to specific works of criticism, but since I've gotten so much mail about the Hollywood Reporter article and the color video on Man of Steel, I guess I'm just going to address them. With the recent Hollywood Reporter article, it raised alleged issues about the DC Cinematic Universe. Based on unnamed quote-unquote sources, there's really only one issue raised, and that's the fact that Warner Brothers is using multiple writers in parallel development on their upcoming films, and that these writers have received limited direction or guidance. Everything else flows naturally out of that one little detail, which, by the way, we knew way back in 2014, but the article poses this as a problem and alleges it as symptomatic of a lack of a Kevin Feige. We've talked about the lack of a Kevin Feige in the mailbag of episode 18, and my opinion has remained essentially unchanged. But let's talk about the article first. While The Hollywood Reporter is a trade on par with Variety, the article isn't so much reporting news as it is 
is giving voice to a specific, salacious view and inventing a crisis around it to give the story a narrative. The article itself is careful to couch most of its assertions in the opinions of others, but the selection of those opinions has a clear narrative thrust behind it. The story is of a company missing a mastermind to guide everything, and the doubt that that has seeded amongst analysts, investors, and a few unnamed insiders. But let's take a step back for a second. Warner Brothers isn't Sony. It isn't struggling by any means. And the WB knows how to build franchises and exploit properties and make money. The DC Cinematic Universe is just the latest intellectual property to be exploited. Warner Brothers has a great relationship with its directors, the visual effects houses, their stable of writers, actors, producers, and other talent. You know, unlike Disney, Warner Brothers maintains a two-way relationship with the distributors and the theater chains. Nobody is boycotting Warner Brothers for trying to up their cut of ticket sales, like has happened in the past with Disney and is happening with German theaters right now. In the stormy seas of the movie business, Warner Brothers keeps an even keel, and it is a well-oiled machine with respect to the production, marketing, release, and sale of movies. However, a profitable, stable, solid, routine machine doesn't really make for much of a story, does it? The readership want the drama of the Sony leak or the disaster of a departing director. So the article didn't interview the content or the confident or the competent willing to go on record about how happy they are with how things are going. It specifically dug for dissent, dissatisfaction, and doubt with people who would never own up to their alleged statements. And unfortunately, this meant that anybody with doubts or fears or anyone who actively dislikes the DCCU have latched onto that article as support for the position without really thinking through its thesis. If we really boil the article down, it says one thing. A few writers are upset that films that are years from release don't have crystal clear direction right now. <laughs> That's not a big deal. It's an invented crisis for the sake of the story. And if history supported the thesis, then I suppose Marvel must have been free of these issues because of Kevin Feige, right? Well, that wasn't the case. At roughly the same time in the MCU's production history, there were clashes between creatives and executives. Iron Man 2 was struggling with the script and production issues, and despite an alleged clarity of vision, the MCU is still rife with glitches in continuity. I don't think they're necessarily worth allowing them to detract from your enjoyment of the films, but if you've watched Age of Ultron, you know that it requires a little bit of retconning to allow it to make sense with the first Avengers film and Iron Man 3 and some other points in past MCU films. Kevin Feige's clear vision may allow progress to proceed more smoothly now, but it has also led to falling outs with Edgar Wright, John Favreau, and possibly Joss Whedon. It didn't prevent or stop the reshuffling of the film slate to accommodate Spider-Man. And if you don't think there was wailing and gnashing of teeth for those who had their productions delayed because of that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Don't get me wrong, Feige's contribution is significant, but it isn't a cure to any of the issues that Warner Brothers is alleged to have right now, since the same ills happened in and at Marvel under Feige's watch. I have friends that work with Marvel licenses, and changes in directions from the top always lead to grumbling about restarting, scrapping work, or errant 
direction. That's simply a fact of life and a fact of production that no studio is immune to, whether you have a Feige or not. It's low-hanging fruit to find a writer or an artist willing to complain about lack of direction. Throw a rock and you'll hit a creative person with that experience. Throw another rock and you'll find an analyst willing to express doubt. Simply put, there's nothing to the article that couldn't have been said about Marvel or any other studio at this point of production. Yes, there's a certain romance to Marvel airlifting in Whedon to do script rewrites on films, but that just proves the point that multiple writers is the norm. Even if it's your relief hitter getting called in and having a Feige doesn't immunize you from these issues. If anything, he exacerbates them as Whedon has recently shared that his each and every creative choice was relentlessly questioned. Marvel has teams of writers workshopping the script, so it is not at all surprising that Warner Brothers is is rapid prototyping films through several iterations, visions, and writers with limited guidance at this point. Scripts are the least costly thing to develop, and it makes sense to run trials now rather than interfere with the vision of your filmmakers after shooting has begun. The Hollywood Reporter brings us nothing new on this front, as we've known that the WB was pursuing simultaneous development of Aquaman back in August of 2014 and Wonder Woman in December of 2014. And of course, the writers whose efforts were culled would be disgruntled and dissatisfied back then. The writers may consider themselves casualties of a lack of vision, but the truth is, it's their job to inspire it. If they find that scene, or that hook, or that structure that is so compelling that it can't be denied, is there any doubt that the WB would happily build a corner of the DCCU around it? Their writing needs to be at that level to make it past the gauntlet. The DCCU uses source material as inspiration rather than as an outline, which gives the writers free reign on where to go with the universe and the characters as long as the story resonates with the studio. And personally, I'm more excited about the best ideas becoming the stories of the DCCU made into film by people passionate about their projects as the primary philosophy over everything, rather than everything being run by the vision of a single producer. We literally already have that. I don't need another version of that. Anyway, in sum, it was a bit of a fluff piece putting together news that we already knew, with an unsupported thesis that Feige would cure all these issues, that struck a spark for detractors ready to damn the DCCU, despite none of this being unique to the WB or really an issue at all. Note that only Marvel has shuffled its release dates to date. We've heard nothing about any of the DCCU films slipping yet outside of speculation. So it's much ado about nothing, and I've already said more on this article than it deserves. But like with anything, whether you're interpreting testimony or parsing evidence, evaluating character motivations, or trying to find a plot hole, always try to take a step back and look at the larger context and the other points of view. Here, it may sound horrible that the writer has to start from scratch, but from the studio's perspective, what is that compared to the sinking feeling and the serious stakes when you feel the need to rework your movie as it's shooting? I'm sorry that a few writers had their feelings feelings hurt and are frustrated, but you don't hold a multi-billion dollar franchise hostage just so that they can feel that their every contribution is guaranteed to make a movie. Okay, I'm kind of rambling. I'm sorry. 
I think I've mentioned before that I have several family members that are artists. So they've all worked under these kinds of conditions where direction seemed fickle and unreasonable. And so I've absolutely heard those disgruntled stories from the creatives. But I've also seen the finished product and, well, okay, okay, I'm rambling. I'm never going to get through all these questions at this rate. But the bottom line is that there is more than one way to make movies and only the finished product matters. Okay, on to Man of Steel. A number of you also sent me this one. Uh, Mitch, Rebecca, Maggie, and others sent me this YouTube video that asked the question, what if Man of Steel was in color? And the video doesn't really raise anything that I haven't heard before. So its content didn't bother me, nor did its reception where people bandied it about as proof that Man of Steel would look better. I was more bothered by the lack of genuine analysis and disappointed by the rebroadcasting of the video without such analysis or disclaimer and the misinterpretation of the reception, at least in my opinion. So I'm not really going to go into the video itself, but its description has been updated as of April 25th, addressing many of the concerns about its claims. Obviously, it isn't a restoration. The people who made the video aren't colorists. They did indeed alter the originals, and they claim the video was meant primarily for comedy and admit that it's a misleading opinion piece. I was saddened that the vast majority of the sites running with this video didn't catch or address any of the concerns that even the video makers had to raise themselves after the backlash to the video. But basically, color grading is an art. And if you search for color grading breakdowns or color grading reels or something similar in Vimeo or YouTube, you can get just an inkling of how much of an art it is. You can see that it could get as granular as practically painting every element in every frame, but rarely is it as simple as slapping a filter over the whole thing. Of course, it is also one of the final processes to be applied, and so it often suffers from the greatest time pressure. Uh, listener Kevin expressed a concern that the color grading of the teasers that we see right now aren't reflective of what we'll see in the final film. And that's actually a fair comment. Kevin noticed the difference between the Man of Steel trailers and the final film. And you may have noticed that even between uh, the different Age of Ultron trailers and spots, that the grading and the visual effects have changed. However, if you've listened to my episode on color, hopefully you'll understand that I don't consider change, brightness, or saturation inherently good or bad. Like I said, I'm not upset at the YouTube video for suggesting Man of Steel should have more color. I'm just disappointed that its discussion wasn't more deft. If we take color grading to be an art, then of course you can criticize and comment and analyze and discuss it as art, and you can have a purely visceral reaction. More on that later. But to have a meaningful conversation beyond just your gut reaction means trying to understand the artist's choices and their reasoning and their technique. And the video attempts to do that a little bit by assigning Nolan relative motives that are pretty easy to discredit on many fronts. But also, that's not really an artistic choice that's more like an editorial or managerial one. They never really understood or explored the artistic reasons for the color choices. Another expert colorist might make different artistic choices and then explain why their choices work together. And those choices could result in brighter colors or more saturation, but their choices would be driven by the whole work, not simply the goal of more vibrancy for its own sake. So in other words, I'm open to other interpretations, but only if their actual interpretation interpretations driven by artistic interests and not just the blind position that brighter is better. Now, on that point, I'm not at all surprised that many people preferred the brighter, more vibrant, more saturated colors when the two are compared. 
However, I'd question the validity or perhaps the meaning of that test. You know, whether people are shown Superman or if they were shown beach balls in a side-by-side comparison, invariably, people will pick and prefer the more saturated colors. However, over the course of an entire film, there's a certain fatigue to highly vibrant colors and people actually prefer less intensity. This phenomenon has been well studied and observed, such that televisions on the retail show floor have demo modes that boost saturation, and for the sound, they boost the bass, the treble, and the volume. But when you buy that television and you take it home, the default settings are far more moderate once you hook up that TV and enjoy it. Probably the best example of the flawed methodology of this kind of test is the criticism over the Pepsi Challenge, where tasters were given a blind sample to sip and tended to prefer and pick Pepsi over Coke. However, despite the success in these tests, repeated research showed that while a quick sip led testers to prefer the sweeter of the two beverages, most tasters preferred a less sweet beverage over the course of an entire can, and that was reflected in their buying habits and in the market share of the two companies, Coke dominating with 42% market share to Pepsi's 28%. Writer Malcolm McDowell suggested in his book Blink that, quote, Pepsi is sweeter than Coke, so right away it has a big advantage in the sip test. Pepsi is characterized by a citrusy flavor burst, unlike the more raisiny vanilla taste of Coke. But that burst tends to dissipate over the course of an entire can, and that is another reason that Coke suffered by comparison. Pepsi, in short, is a drink built to shine in the sip test, end quote. So we could always predict that the greater saturation would win in the visual equivalent of a sip test. But that doesn't mean that it's the universal preference of people consuming an entire movie. Again, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be an artistically rendered version with brighter colors that people prefer, just as some prefer Pepsi to Coke in the end. But it does mean that the predictability of the sip test is a far less reliable predictor of what people actually want under real-world conditions. The consistency of the sip test isn't proof that one recipe is better than the other. By the same token, for color grading, the artist is trying to weigh, balance, and achieve much more than just vibrant colors. If there was no art or subjectivity to taste or to choice, they could just turn the dial all the way up without thought or consideration for balance. All right, the next uh, Man of Steel question I had comes from Sapiwe, Engel, Mitch, and Alan, who all ask about characterization questions versus uh, the Brandon Routh Superman, Captain America in the MCU, and uh, sort of the Boy Scout archetype. So I'm just going to sort of mash them all into one question, and I'll tackle the last one first since it's pretty easy. I don't believe that Man of Steel Superman will ever be or should be a Boy Scout in the sense that most think of. Now, in the sense that he's virtuous and always there to help, he resembles a Boy Scout. However, when it's applied to Superman, it usually assumes a certain degree of blind adherence to quaint mottos and codes and following them naively. Here, Superman's adherence to virtue is anything but blind. As we discussed in the poem anyway last episode, Superman is more than aware of the costs of helping. Every time he helps, he compromises his identity, and his first public act of assistance is to surrender his freedom to humanity. 
You know, further, this is a Superman who has to balance principles and interests rather than rely on absolutes. So there isn't this absolute code to be followed in a blind or naive fashion. So to me, that means that this Superman is never going to be that same kind of oblivious Boy Scout. From my notes, the idea of Boy Scouts sort of blindly following codes and helping grannies cross the road likely originated with a 1909 satirical cartoon that was drawn and written by Sir Bernard Partridge back in the days where somebody would have the name Sir Bernard Partridge. It showed a young, maybe nine-year-old Boy Scout leading an elderly woman with the caption, Our youngest line of defense, Boy Scout, to Mrs. Britannia. Fear not, Grandma. No danger can befall you now. Remember, I am with you. And so it was a statement about the young American nation trying to guard and defend England. It served to mock the naivety of the Boy Scout in believing that he could protect and help Old Britannia, which was England. Now, ironically, this mocking cartoon served as the inspiration for this actual activity now attributed to scouts, that is, helping old ladies cross the street. Now, that doesn't mean that Superman can't be optimistic and light, but he will never represent that sort of false hope that's mocked by Sir Partridge's cartoon. A little boy doesn't really provide any protection, just like a hero who always gets written out of moral quandaries doesn't really offer any inspiration on how to deal with them. As a really minor spoiler, Age of Ultron gently mocks the idea of a naive code adherence with the running gag about language. The idea that adhering to a code doesn't really represent any kind of true virtue, but it's just a childish code. And that sort of acts as a straw man to distract you from the choices that get made later based on similar codes. I've mentioned in the past that the central debate between security and liberty was undermined in The Winter Soldier. And on a more personal or character level, Steve was set up to choose between his friend and the lives of millions, but again was written out of having to make that choice in any kind of meaningful way. In Age of Ultron, we again revisit the desire for security at the expense of making monsters, but in many ways, the event are written out of the quandaries yet again. Just a few more mild spoilers, but there's a point where Tony and Bruce reach the crossroads of an issue for a second time, and they disagree on what the right course of action is. Now, obviously, the plot needs for them to go a certain way, and the story of the Avengers isn't about Tony persuading Bruce to agree through complicated moral philosophy or argument, but it's a little telling that they cut away from Tony actually persuading Bruce, and that when we come back to that scene, Bruce is on board, but we don't quite know how. In real life, you're going to encounter people with a difference in opinion. But when you need their cooperation, you need to be able to convince them. And here we got what amounted to a trust me when that had already been shattered previously in the film. There's another obvious issue with the needs of the many versus the needs of the few or that issue of the greater good. And without getting into the specifics, Captain America makes a decision that doesn't quite jive with his choices at the end of the first Captain America film. You can distinguish and reconcile it, but there is a superficial issue. But ultimately, he isn't faced with a hard decision or really any kind of decision at all because once again, they're written out of having to make that choice or deal with that issue. So originally when the question was posed to me, it was whether Captain America or Superman are represented within their films more true to their characters. And I think Superman had to show more real character in alignment with his tradition, whereas Cap was put into more traditional situations in alignment. 
alignment with his tradition. So in the first case, we truly test the character, and it shows that he can stand up like Steel, even under extreme circumstances. Whereas in the latter case, Marvel chose to stay in safer waters, where basically any good guy would basically fare okay. The moral hurdles and challenges and tests of the character were so relatively low that even an ex-KGB or a sketchy head of a covert ops organization, brainwashed assassins, and even Eastern European terrorists could all clear those hurdles without much effort. There are merits to each approach. Uh, In the first approach, you're trying to stop the audience from taking the icon for granted. And in the other approach, you're trying to familiarize the audience with an icon that has been forgotten or faded. With Superman, many people take for granted that he's heroic and that his heroism is easy because of his powers. So Man of Steel, and to some extent Superman Returns, provided moral hurdles to show heroism isn't easy, to stop taking that idea for granted and just assuming it. For Captain America, who barely registered on the brand recognition radar until recent years, it's about building up a reputation that didn't exist. So even if it means contrived and easy circumstances, that's maybe what it takes to create the association. Of course, down the road with a film like Civil War, it will confront that, and I think that's exactly right. At least for some people, part of the reception to Age of Ultron comes from the idea that we're taking greatness for granted. And it becomes really easy to nitpick the Avengers without appreciating just how much it manages to do right. So we're sort of on that path towards taking the Marvel Cinematic Universe for granted. And what I think that means is that like we saw a little bit in Iron Man 3, you might start to see a little bit of deconstruction from here on out to give those characters a little more genuine depth. When compared to Superman Returns, I think part of the issue was that the continuity there was incompatible with the kind and the degree of deconstruction that was being applied to the film. It's just a little bit masochistic to create this romantic notion of the one true love and then deconstruct any possibility for the hero to have that. As we discussed way back in episode 13, I think it was trying to patch modern sensibilities and realities onto a fundamentally older and more fantasy version of Superman. And while Man of Steel's reception means that it may be odds with the general perception of some carrying around the baggage of tradition, within the film itself, it's built an intrinsically more complicated and nuanced mythology, meaning less need for deconstruction in the future, but simply continuing to build on the reality already established. There's no one way to tell a serial story. You can go from cartoony to real, or from real to more fantastic. They both have their pro and cons, and seeing as how we already have is Superman 1 through Superman Returns, and we have the Marvel Universe, I'm gratified that we're getting a slightly different approach with the DCU. Okay, in our last Man of Steel question for this mailbag, Ted asks why I keep bringing up morality and philosophy in these recent episodes, and it's mostly because I'm slowly but surely getting to the tornado scene. And most of the deeper debate about that circles around these kinds of moral questions and philosophical questions, and I'm actively researching these kind of things as we approach it. So it bubbles up into the podcast, and I just sort of record it as a way of memorializing the reading and 
and the research that I'm doing. But more generally, it's a plea to ask people to keep an open mind and to recognize that their preferences don't necessarily reflect absolute truth or fact. These things get complicated and complex out on the extremes, and they're not nearly as clear-cut as we sometimes like to believe. It's sort of an aside, but I recently read an article, which I'll link in the show notes, about research which found that we stop listening to new music after the age of 33. So with comics and comics properties, which have lasted close to 80 years, I try to do my best to make a conscious effort to keep my mind open and try to avoid taste freeze, uh, described in more detail in the article, or at least to recognize when or if my tastes have frozen, and not to dismiss the tastes of others because of my own biases. There's something inevitable about older people telling younger people that their taste is terrible, but I don't need to participate in that. And it's something I'm actively trying to avoid because I remember being told everything that I loved and enjoyed was terrible by the generation before me. These things are cyclical, and while that's a reason, it's not really an excuse, but I'm rambling and I have to speed up. Uh, Moving on to the Batman v Superman questions. Uh, Sapiwe asks, what's Batman's beef against Superman? And uh, we don't know. Uh, I'll come back to this probably some other time. A comic book nerd points out that the lines that we hear in the film, particularly from Batman, could be pulled from anywhere or in a different context within the film. Uh, Gail Simone on Twitter mentioned that everything that she sees feels like it's from the first act. If you think back to the Man of Steel teaser, everything again was from the first act, except uh, Clark running with a cape as a boy, which is still chronologically early in the story, and a single shot of Superman taking off. Now, we got far more substance in this teaser than in that one, so we've probably caught a glimpse of things beyond the first act. But I don't think much more than that. And again, we're talking about, what, 42 seconds of substantive footage. So that's it. And I know I keep bringing up Age of Ultron, but we literally finished watching it just a few hours ago, so it's still on my mind. But there were a lot of little shots, scenes, and sequences from the trailer and the teasers that didn't make it into the final film. So I think we can hold off for now from plotting out the entire film uh, based on just 42 seconds of footage. Um... All right, next question. Todd asks if I've seen the Batwing art, and I have. It doesn't line up perfectly with the new Batmobile. If you put them side by side, they do share similar lines, designs, and features. So if this Batwing art is 100% representative of the final product, idea of the Batmobile converting into the Batwing is dead. But if this art is just a concept of what it should look like rather than what it literally looks like, there are enough common features there that it still might be a possibility. Uh, The engineer in me knows that there's not a whole lot to be gained by a modular cockpit and that you're better off with two different vehicles built and designed from the ground up. But the gadget fan in me would love to see that kind of gimmick and imagine the toys that they will sell if your Batmobile can also convert into a Batwing, right? (laughs) Um, Next question. I got a number of tweets and emails asking me to comment on the comments of others. So uh, let's just quickly run down the ones that I have here. Um, I don't have any of the clips prepared or any of the quotes verbatim in my notes. So I'm just sort of paraphrasing. Please take it with a grain of salt. The first one is Joss Wheaton's excitement at Batman v Superman. And also his comment that great power naturally comes with questions and differences in opinion. And I love that, not just for the truth of the statements, but because it proves there's no need to draw pointless battle lines. The WB 
Bumblebee didn't go with Wheaton's Wonder Woman script, and he's the director of Marvel's flagship film franchise. If anyone was going to tow a fictional party line, it would be Wheaton. But he's just excited, just like the rest of us, to enjoy Batman v Superman, irrespective of who signs his paycheck. You know, Zack Snyder loves Star Wars. J.J. Abrams loves DC Comics. There's no need to despise something else just because of made-up battle lines. You can enjoy it or not, all on its own merits. Okay, the other comment was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson saying something to the effect that Batman answers to the commissioner and Superman does whatever the hell he wants. Well, we don't know whether he's speaking about the mythos in general or within the context of Batman v Superman. If he's talking about the mythos in general, he's correct. Batman often has ties to the state from the bat signal to the bat phone. And very often the government at some level is aware of his secret and tolerates him. And we've seen that dynamic in the DCAU where Waller knows his identity and in the CW Arrow, where Argus knows Oliver's identity. So within the tradition of comics, it's not a radical idea that Batman is on some level beholden to the state. Of course, on a more romantic level, most of us think of Batman as the unbridled vigilante, whereas Superman follows law and order. In Kingdom Come, Superman's retirement was not precipitated just by the death of Lois Lane, but by his heart being broken when the people praised the vigilante for killing the perpetrator, rather than having faith that the system would met out justice. Superman often shares a good working relationship with the police, and that's taken to its extreme in The Dark Knight Returns, where Superman acts as a government lackey. But if we talk in more general terms, uh, Dr. Tyson is right since Batman exists inside Commissioner Gordon's good graces. There's no better illustration of that than the Batman animated series episode entitled Over the Edge which shows what happens when Gordon goes to war with Batman. By contrast, Superman is not bound by the laws of man or even of nature. He's bound only by the restraints and the constraints that he puts upon himself, which in some loose way is the Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch and the man who abides by his own rules. To use the Christopher Reeve Superman as the model, although the laws of nature and the guidance of Krypton say that he's not to turn back time, he does it anyway. In Superman 4, although sovereign states have decided to proliferate nuclear weaponry, Superman overrides the law of man and disarms the world. In the fairy tale reality of those stories, it's not an issue, but in a setting more like our own in Man of Steel or the Batman v Superman, it's entirely reasonable that those questions get asked. And while I don't expect a final or complete answer, I'm guessing they're going to be a little more nuanced in treatment than they got in Age of Ultron. Now, if we apply Dr. Tyson's statement to Batman v Superman and interpret it narrowly and more literally, where Batman is actually a state agent, surprisingly, I'm on board with that. I know it's a departure from traditional Batman, and it could have some fans up in arms, but from my perspective, it's another way to totally rationalize the entire Batman mythos while distinguishing it from Nolan's Batman. For Nolan's Batman, you can sum up all the logistics with two words, billionaire ninja. Everything is explained by one of those words or the other. However, I think a different take on Batman could be rationalized with just one name, James Bond. 
How did he get his training? He was recruited and trained just like James Bond. His stealth, his secret identity, his gadgets, and his combat skills, all government issued just like James Bond. Any of Batman's logistics can be explained using the James Bond archetype. And it isn't that far removed from tradition when many versions of Alfred was himself a former spy who taught Bruce spycraft, combat, and the like. It makes the transition to a globally sanctioned Justice League smoother if Batman already has government contacts. Really, there are only two issues, and they are oversight, which traditional Batman always has, just in a sort of more passive fashion, and the so-called license to kill. If Batman really is a covert ops super spy, then he'd have a license to kill and an expectation to use it. And that may or may not be consistent with Batman v Superman, although it is at odds with tradition. It could be used as an explanation for his separation from the government, but we may have to prepare for the possibility that Batman does not have a no-killing code in the DC Cinematic Universe. If you think about the sheer logistics of stopping evil in a war on crime that stretches for decades, it's difficult for that war to be without casualties in a real-world setting. Even setting aside the guns, traditionally Batman stops things through violent concussion. We've seen from the close-up of his costume that his knuckles are covered with metal and in real life striking people with metal knuckles with the intention of knocking them out always brings with it the risk of death maybe you die from the punch or you die from falling and hitting your head or you die from the inability to breathe while you're unconscious simply put you can't survive decades of war pulling punches and it's unlikely that you've knocked out hundreds of men without causing death or permanent maiming of some of them of course that analysis is with reality dialed all the way up and the very existence of Batman necessitates that you bring that dial down some. And you know what? I take it all back because in Man of Steel, we had the stylized combat between Zod and Jor-El, punching each other in the face with armored gauntlets. So there's evidence and there's precedent that we have already dialed that back here in this universe. So these conclusions aren't necessary, but they're a useful thought experiment for testing the boundaries of what Batman is or could be. And again, not simply take these characters for granted. Wow, that was not quick at all and too much of a tangent just on Tyson's comment. Comments. Let's just quickly go over Henry Cavill's comments. First, he said that Batman v Superman is not a Man of Steel sequel. And second, he said that Superman crushing Batman in an instant wouldn't be Superman-like or consistent with Superman's character. And honestly, I think I'm just going to skip these because I don't really have anything to say that isn't over-analysis of what is mostly off-the-cuff answers and semantic parsing. I-, I pretty much agree with everything he said, and I don't see a problem or a portent of any issues here. I guess I'll just insert one more random comment. Uh, I think Forbes estimated that the total overall revenue from tickets, pay-per-view sales, concessions, and merchandising for the Floyd Mayweather and the Manny Pacquiao fight to be 500 million or basically half a billion dollars. I think Batman v Superman has a more exciting card. (laughs) Take that as you will. All right, on to Suicide Squad. Oh, Suicide Squad, I have been dying to talk about this, but I don't know where to start. There's been so much news, so many things that have uh, come to pass. I think I'll hit these couple of things rapid fire. We've got the Joker picture, uh, Batman or Ben Affleck on set, and uh, Viola Davis. So um, starting with that Joker picture, I didn't like the Joker picture. Uh, which 
isn't a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing necessarily. I didn't like uh, Heath Ledger's first Joker picture either. And that's because a man with hideous scars on the sides of his mouth is hard to look at. You're supposed to feel uh, revulsion and disgust and want to look away. And here the Joker isn't nearly as hard to look at, but his eyes and his teeth and the pallor of his skin, they provide plenty of nightmare fuel. So it's still not pleasant to look at. And in one sense, it might have been comforting to see an image that everyone agreed represented the Joker unanimously. However, intellectually, I'm happy it doesn't because, again, it's easy to take these characters for granted. And I really feel like DC is making a concerted effort to avoid our preconceived assumptions. This Joker is definitely distinguishable from every prior look. And we'll just have to see how it jives with the performance. Now, the Joker's skin tends to suggest that the DCCU has dealt with the weird for a while now, but it's still not beyond the bounds of reality. Um, Many have joked or criticized that this Joker looks like Marilyn Manson or somebody who shops at Hot Topic. But I think that just means that this Joker could actually get around in the world under that guise. You know, he would turn heads and he would draw attention, but then quickly get dismissed as somebody on the fringe of society, as opposed to somebody who's actively a threat to it. Or perhaps maybe a sort of trite way of putting it, Leto's Joker could actually shop at Hot Topic, whereas every other Joker shows up and the police are called. That means that this Joker can actually participate in the realistic world without having to rely on tropes to make his machinations work. So in that sense, it's a more mundane Joker, but nonetheless completely true to the spirit of the character. Uh, The tattoos fit with that motif, but I don't really expect to see a lot of them since he'll probably be clothed for most of the film. Uh, But if he's not, Leto's posted some impressive gym photos, so maybe this will be one of the most physical jokers we've ever seen. With Affleck, uh, not much to say. I think it's great that he's on set and that he's in costume and it suggests that they're doing world building and reinforcing the shared universe with this extremely popular character. I hope that we get uh, Superman or Clark cameos in some of the other films or that we get the rumored Lex Luthor cameo in this film, but I'm glad that it seems like the filmmakers get to play with all the toys in the play chest. Having Batman in this film and hopefully Lex Luthor is going to add more authority and connection to the Suicide Squad. Uh, Regarding Viola Davis, I still don't think there's been an official press release about her casting, but I just wanted to mention that after watching How to Get Away with Murder, I'm completely on board with her as Amanda Waller. Davis was always my first pick, although I did think that Oprah would have brought some spectacle to the film. However, Davis is still an unknown to much of the public, so she's not going to be as distracting in the role, certainly not as distracting as Oprah, and there is no question that she has the acting chops. I hope they give her something substantial to show her talent and start that love-hate relationship with Amanda Waller that makes the character so interesting. And a completely uh, random aside that nobody asked about, I also had the opportunity to watch uh, Carla Delevingne's performance in Timeless, and my estimation of her as an actor has risen considerably. Now, assuming I have time to edit this, uh, speaking of casting, there's a public radio interview with the casting directors of Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, and so I'm just going to play that to give you a little insight into that process and uh, give myself a little break. 
When that trailer for the upcoming Batman vs. Superman movie was revealed late last week, audiences caught their first glimpse of Ben Affleck as Batman, a casting decision that generated a lot of haterade on the Internet. They also saw Henry Cavill reprise his role as Superman. Laura Kennedy is a veteran casting director who was in on the early plans to place these two men in superhero suits. She's also worked on movies directed by Ben Affleck, Argo, and The Town, and the Wachowskis' films Cloud Atlas and Speed Racer, among others. David Rubin and Laura Kennedy sat down with The Frame's John Horn to discuss the job of being a casting director in today's film business. So I'm going to start with a, uh, a, a basic question. If uh, you are casting a casting director, what are the attributes that that job requires? Uh, I think casting directors are psychologists and matchmakers and astute readers of scripted material. They are sensitive to both the actor's process and the director's process, and they are called casting directors because they direct the casting process. And we're caretakers. Meaning? We take care of all the needs of everybody. The actors come in with a certain amount of nerves and anxiety and dreams and hopes and wishes. And the directors come in with anxiety and dreams and hopes and wishes. And we have to calm them down. We have to get them focused. And we take care of them. A, a director once said to me that the two most important things in filmmaking are the script and the cast. And everything else is transportation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I think that we're, we're fortunate because we're involved... The earliest stages of the filmmaking process, when, Very every, early. when everybody is deciding, what is this thing that we're making? Can you each think of anecdotally an example where you said, trust me on this one. I really believe in this person, even if it was an unknown who went on to greatness or even with somebody who never went on to greatness, who defined a role and made a movie what it is. Laura? Well, for me, I think probably the most direct example for me is Henry Cavill in Superman because when we had started Superman before this last Man of Steel that was done with Zack Snyder, we had gone through a series of trying to reboot it with a bunch of different directors and then we finally settled on a director and an actor. And that film got made and he was really lovely, but we had also tested Henry at that time. This is Brandon Routh? Brandon Routh. And he um, was fantastic, but the film just didn't work as well as they had hoped. So we rebooted it seven years later and Henry was still around. And so I said to him, let's try this one more time, you and me. Come in. Let's you and me read this one more time. Let's give it one more shot. And he was it. And I, we just submitted him to the directors and the producers. And luckily, Chris Nolan was producing, Zack Snyder was directing, and everybody was in agreement. Then Henry was the guy. And it took Henry and I seven, eight years to make that happen. But I knew it. Well, I'm going to talk about an international actress. I'm going to talk about somebody, Laura, you found in Israel for Wonder Woman. Can you tell a little bit about how you cast that part? Um, well, we looked worldwide. And Zach really wanted somebody— yeah, Zach Snyder. Zack Snyder wanted somebody with some European feel because the legend of Wonder Woman is that she's from Greece and there was this, you know, the fan base needs these kinds of— things to be paid attention to. So, you know, we had seen Gal in the Fast and Furious series and really loved her. And then we met her. And she's absolutely fantastic. She's 5'10". She's a supermodel. And she was in the Israeli army. 
She What's has, not to love? What's like? not to love? And she <laughs> has no fear. She's really great. But we did. We looked all over the world for that. Um, Laura, there was uh, initially a fair amount of backlash about casting Ben Affleck as Batman. Yes. How much were you anticipating that? Did you underestimate the reaction, or is that always going to happen to that extent? I think probably we anticipated a little, not as much as we got. I think Ben handled it really well, but I think it was hard on him. I don't think at any time people can't expect that to not have an effect on these actors. It doesn't matter if it's Ben or anybody. All this negativity and this anonymous hating that goes on on these websites is really out of control. And no one knows what kind of Batman we're making. No one knows the character of Batman in this particular movie. It's not Christian. It's a new Batman. And Ben is a new Batman, and he has a new take on it, and he's worked very hard at this, and he has committed himself to it, and I think people are really going to be surprised. And there will always be people who don't like it, and that's fine, but I think this hating stuff before they see the result of it, to me, is one of the biggest problems we have today. Not with just casting, but with films in general. Laura Kennedy and David Rubin, (laughs) casting directors, thank you so much for coming on The Frame. Thanks Thanks so much. Okay, guys, I was just about to upload this episode, and the Suicide Squad group photo was published by director David Ayer via Twitter, and so I figured I'd give my quick first impressions and maybe revisit this at a later date when I've got more time to analyze it. But from left to right, we have Adam Beach, rumored to be playing Slipknot. We have Jai Courtney as Boomer. Karen Fukuhara as Katana, Cara Delevingne as Enchantress, Joel Kinnaman as Rick Flagg, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, Will Smith as Deadshot, Aduali Akinoye Abaji as Killer Croc, and Jay Hernandez as El Diablo. So my first impression is that it's weird. It's weird and it's confronting. And as somebody who enjoys realism, this is plainly a departure from that. I have trouble imagining some of these weirder characters in this photo inhabiting the Man of Steel world in any way. However, that doesn't mean it won't fit the world of Batman v Superman, and it doesn't mean that they won't fit the larger DCCU. If Batman is the one cracking open the door to a stylized world of weird, then these guys are kicking down that door, which might be exactly right after we've seen Wonder Woman in action at the end of Batman v Superman. And if you think about the DCAU, that had clear stylistic jumps in the world and the reality between Batman and then Superman and ultimately Justice League. And I don't think the DCAU suffered very much for that. If you think about Fox Studios, they have been the poster child of presenting cast and costumes in a way that gets roundly criticized at first and then works perfectly in First Class or Days of Future Past. So with an open mind that these confrontational costumes are going to look great in context, let's just give each of them a short rundown uh, going from least to most weird, okay? (laughs) So first we've got Rick Flagg, and he's the first of three guys on this list who are basically wearing traditional tactical gear. His rifle is fully kitted out with all those sweet Magpul accessories, and on his chest is an American flag, so the chances of Task Force X being a private organization seems lower, and it's much more likely to be a government black ops squad uh, as it is traditionally in the comics. It's a little interesting that Flagg is the only one with a scope on his rifle, 
rifle and not a particularly big one at that. So this is a squad that likely does most of its wet work up close and personal rather than from a distance. Uh, next, number two, we've got Slipknot, who also falls into that paramilitary archetype, but is a little weirder than Flag because he's covered in cordage, that is rope, and you see two strange stylized, stockless, but pistol-gripped, short-barreled weapons dangling from either thigh. And if I didn't know that this was Slipknot, I might assume that those were breaching weapons, but instead, I believe they're grappling guns, uh, with the grappling hooks folded or collapsed into the muzzle of each gun. And having cordage running throughout his body means that he might be able to perform things sort of like the characters on Attack of Titan, which I've never watched, but I'm aware of its impact on genre audiences, and uh, supposedly that mode of transport is really cool and really appealing. It might be something they might be to pull off with these two uh, grappling guns strapped to his thighs. Um, number three, we've got Deadshot. So if Slipknot is weirder for having rope and grapple guns, Deadshot is weirder still by opting for red instead of olive drab or tactical black and for his two forearm mounted handguns. Deadshot's rifle only has that ACOG reflex sight, so he likely gains long range accuracy by way of his eyepiece, uh, or perhaps it's just in his nature, skills, or talent. The ability to use forearm firearms as viable weapons demands skill and a certain amount of stylized reality. So their inclusion proves that DC is committed towards something more faithful to the comics than what is starkly realistic in this case. Uh, later, Smith released a photo on Facebook where we get a closer look at the costume. We see that there is a mask and an eyepiece, and on his neck and his rifle appears to be the phrase, I am the light, the way no idea what that means at this point. It seems vaguely religious, but uh, but maybe we'll analyze that in the future. Uh, next, we've got number four, Diablo. So El Diablo actually isn't all that weird beyond his facial tattoos, which are weird, don't get me wrong, but he's ranked more weird than the squad members with the weapons and the tactical gear because he seems so mundane and out of place on such a violent, uh, aggressive, militarized squad. Now, never fear if you're not familiar with with El Diablo, he actually has pyrokinesis in the New 52, and so that's how he'll bring the heat. Uh, no pun intended. Well, okay, maybe that pun was intended. Um... <laughs> Whereas, you know, Deadshot's penchant for accuracy seems to be inhuman, it's still maybe an achievable skill. But with Diablo, it is just out and out a metahuman ability. So the next weirdest person we've got is number five, Boomerang. And he's weird like Diablo for some of the same reasons, being seemingly a normal guy in normal clothes. But he's weirder than Diablo because he's not even wearing the normal clothes. Uh, his left hand seems to be encased in chainmail and leather, which makes sense for a man trying to catch razor-sharp boomerangs on their return flight. And he's got nicks on his forehead and on the bridge of his nose, suggesting that maybe he hasn't actually caught every boomerang perfectly. Or maybe that he's been in some scraps. Boomerang just oozes sleaze with that gold chain jewelry around his neck, the polyester tracksuit under his heavy coat, and the weapon duct taped to his right leg. With the knit cap, he's right out of the comic books, which are weird. 
Now, never would I have guessed that I would rank Harley Quinn as only the fourth weirdest looking person on the squad. And my justification for that is putting aside the weaponry, so far everyone, including Harley, could walk into a mall without the cops being called. If Harley walked by you wearing what she's wearing, you definitely would be startled, but not necessarily threatened. She's wearing Adidas branded high heels, which were generally lambasted last year as the world's worst trend. and. Somehow that's perfect that Harley would adopt them. Uh, Harley matches thematically with the image of Joker and the tattoos, um, the rocker belt and the ripped t-shirt. She's dangling a pair of handcuffs and sporting an ivory-handled revolver in a holster under her jacket. It's a little tough to take her seriously on a team of soldiers, assassins, and metahumans, but we don't have the context as to why she's on the squad. I can see bursts of profoundly disturbing and effective violence coming from this Harley, but definitely not a soldier-like competence or seriousness. It's a small thing, but I'm glad she's smiling in the photo. The red and blue scheme seems to be inspired by the new 52 version rather than some of her older, more uh, traditional red and black color schemes. Um, we might as well break down some of those tattoos. The tattoo on her left thigh seems to be hash marks, uh, which could be a kill count, and that would put her around 40 kills, which makes her amongst the worst murderers in American criminal history. The other tattoo seems to say pudding over a heart with an arrow through it. And like with the Joker, this is a totally unique look, but it still captures the spirit of the character. I'm not 100% on Katana being weirder than Harley, but I'm ranking it this way because the things that are intrinsic to her character and her look are weirder than with Harley. Basically, as long as Harley loses or hides that gun, she can make her way in the real world, albeit with people gawking and staring, but Katana can't lose her mask and her swords and still be herself. And if she goes anywhere with those things, the cops are going to be called. So a gun is generally a more practical weapon, and that means you have to be on another level to bringing swords into a fight with automatic weapons. I'm glad that there's another woman on this team, and her inclusion makes the cast even more diverse. In the comics, Katana is always a hero, so I'm wondering how she finds her way onto the squad in this film. And so far, everyone in the cast screams action, 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 and the inclusion of a crouching swordmaster just reinforces that. Uh, the mask is quite faithful to the current comics, and speaking of comic book fidelity, we come to number eight, Enchantress. Doesn't really look like anything that we've ever seen in the comics, and she would take the top spot for weird if it wasn't for Killer Croc. I have no idea what's going on here. I think you see her and you call the cops, not because you think you're in danger necessarily, but because you think something has been done to her. The few pieces of clothing that we can identify are heavily stylized, and she looks like a priestess from a swords and sandals story. I like that crescent that's on her head. It might suggest a crescent moon, which would tie to her normal name, which is June Moon. And part of her costume motif seems to be chains, which might suggest that she is or was a prisoner of some sort. The black makeup around her eyes makes her look even more undead than Harley Quinn. And honestly, I'm more terrified of Enchantress than I am of Killer Croc. I can't wait to see how she works into the squad. I have difficulty imagining her inclusion if she doesn't have some kind of power, whether supernatural or metahuman. And I haven't really thought through all the implications of what it means to have people like Enchantress, El Diablo, 
Diablo or the Croc in the world, or where training can bring you up to the level of somebody of Katana or Deadshot. But again, that refrain that I think I'm going to keep coming back to is that it means that the DCCU is open to the fantastic, the magical, and the weird. And that's just wonderful. Now, finally, we have the king of weird that has to be Killer Croc. As weird as everyone else is on the squad, with just a little effort, they could all pass as human. And that seems impossible with Croc, who has scaly skin and sharpened teeth. His hands are wrapped like a boxer, and he's otherwise wearing rather mundane clothing. Um, Perhaps, ironically, he's wearing alligator skin boots and a coat, but, but his clothing is basically normal. He's big, but he's not inhumanly enormous. And for him to have any relevance to this team, I'm going to assume that he's got some sort of resistance to small arms fire and incredible strength. His presence here suggests that he's going to be uh, in practical makeup rather than a visual effect. And the whole group is standing in front of a sign, welcoming them to Bell Rev. That's all the time I have for these quick impressions. Uh, Now back to your regularly scheduled episode. Okay, in Wonder Woman news, Matt asks about the change in directors and whether that's an issue. And Toa asks about what I think about the new art. Um, Regarding McLaren's departure and Jenkins as a replacement, I'm glad I didn't talk too much about this up front. My general policy is to wait for an official press release because there's so much that can and does shift behind the scenes during production. I know there's been a lot of rumors and hearsay about the reasons for the departure, and I can't speak to how reliable or trustworthy those rumors might be or how much weight we should accord them. Nonetheless, because some have used this to create a narrative of chaos and disorder and incompetence, let me just propose an alternative narrative that still fits the facts of the rumors that we've been told. So basically, Basically, the WB wanted a talented director, and so they actively pursued and wooed McLaren to make Wonder Woman. From the outset, McLaren had a different vision from the studio, and both parties knew it. The WB didn't hire McLaren blindly, and McLaren didn't sign on, assuming that Warner was 100% behind her. Although there was a difference in vision, Warner was open-minded enough to be convinced. They've allowed talented directors to try out all sorts of radical visions in the past, and they wanted to give McLaren a shot to convince them. Meanwhile, McLaren knew that she'd have to work the process to do so to convince them, and when she did, they would officially announce her as the director by way of press release. So to convince them, McLaren had to start working on her own treatment of the story and to start to get involved the way Warner does big budget pre-production, asking for concept art and the like. Of course, this amount of interaction means that her involvement is leaked, and we all know that McLaren is on board without an official press release. So in other words, Warner and her intended to make the announcement after they had established her vision, but instead, we all know about it before she's had an opportunity to convince them. This outs her as the director when this is really more like an audition or an internship. McLaren was going to prove that she could work within Warner's studio system on a big budget production, and in the process, convince Warner of her vision. Warner Brothers is willing to give you movie after movie if you can work within their system. And this would be McLaren's first try at such a system. And rumor has it that it didn't work out. It doesn't mean that she wouldn't be great under another studio system or that she couldn't learn with time. But on her first outing with this system, the production is rumored to be described as torturous. If she had been able to churn out pre-production and work smoothly with the system, I doubt we'd be hearing about 
about the other disagreements, but since there was trouble managing the system, that casts doubts over the other points of her vision and allows them to part on the basis of creative differences. So, for example, one such alleged disagreement was over the amount of action and the talking tiger sidekick. If McLaren was flying through pre-production and shown that she had a knack for it despite being her first time tackling such a project, like with the Russo brothers being entrusted with Winter Soldier as their first action film, or Nolan being trusted with the $150 million budget of Batman Begins when the average budget of his first three films was $17 million, I believe that had she worked out those first couple of months, Warner would have gone with her take. But if she was struggling with their system, there would be cause to be more conservative on the action or to avoid a supporting character that is all visual effects all the time. So I think they agreed to part ways and then the WB signed Jenkins and then they confirmed that information to the press in a timely and strategic manner. So long story short, it's not the story of conflicting visions so much as Warner gave McLaren a shot to show what she could do with expensive pre-production and she wasn't compatible with their system at this time with her level of experience. That doesn't mean that Warner's system is wrong or that McLaren is a bad director, just not a good fit after this trial period. That narrative is more consistent with the subsequent hiring of Patty Jenkins, who departed from Thor because of creative differences. If the split was because the studio couldn't control McLaren's vision, then it wouldn't make sense to hire Jenkins, who has already left a Marvel movie for much the same reasons. Of course, all of this is talking in the shadows, in the dark, and relying on hearsay. We haven't got a statement from Jenkins or a press release on that either. So I'm going to reserve my comments about Jenkins until we get a press release on that. But for now, let me just say that she's an incredible writer and director, and I hope she gets a chance to apply both of those talents to Wonder Woman. Uh, in answer to Toa's question about the new art, it looks good. The cape is interesting because it acts as a unifying piece of costume for all the Trinity characters. And it's also in line with tradition since both on TV and in the comics, Wonder Woman has on occasion worn a cape. It also appears to have a hood, so it remains to be seen how much she'll wear it. The costume that appears in the Warner Brothers studio tour doesn't have a cape, so the cape might be ceremonial or not part of her standard gear. However, it also has a unique look to it that suggests some sort of utility or use beyond just an ordinary cape or cloth. We'll see. Uh, we have some miscellaneous questions. I think we're not going to handle them today, uh, but I've got two questions pertaining to the Justice League. Let's see. Uh, Maggie asks if Justice League can beat the Avengers at the box office, and Scott asks if we're going to get actual musical themes for the Justice League, and I'm regretting not preparing or addressing these in email uh, or something. I, I don't know. I suppose anything is possible, but I don't think we know enough at this point to hazard any kind of guess. If Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and Wonder Woman all hit it out of the park, I don't see why not. You could even falter some and still get there. But I guess my answer is it's too early to tell, and it's the same for the musical themes. I don't know that we're getting musical themes even in Batman v Superman or whether they'll be carried forward. I think it'd be nice to have, and they readily manipulate your memories and your emotions, and maybe even better if you can hum them, but I don't know if they're necessary 
reality or where filmmaking is today. Could be wrong, but I think in the first two Daniel Craig Bond films, they didn't use the James Bond theme in the film itself. And I think I'm just going to cut it off here. I'm sorry I didn't get through all the questions, but hopefully this should give you something to listen to until we get some more exciting DCCU news. Thanks so much for listening. This is Dr. Awkward, your DCCU apologist, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son.